Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show. Events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley, and this is the podcast extension of show 476. Our guest for today is John Dorshik. Iowa State Archaeologist and Director of the State Archaeologist and Adjunct Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Iowa, who is taking time to talk with us about ancient peoples in Iowa. The history buffs for this show are Rick Sweet and Jay Swords. And Jay, now that you're retired and one of those ancient people, why don't you start off your first question? Amen, brother. (laughs) (laughs) John, I'm curious... At what point do we start to see the development in Iowa of um, the uh, the tribes that we that we would associate with um, the advent of uh, European settlers coming in and, and that sort of thing? Is that happening 500 years ago, 200 years ago? Do we have a sense? And and are these folks? related to those woodland tribes or those archaic tribe, you know, those archaic populations that were in the country, or are they folks who have moved in from outside of Iowa? Yeah, that, that's, that's a really interesting part of uh, whether it was something that was happening as a local adaptation or, or was it something that was sort of brought in by others. And our archaeologists over the, over the decades have sort of swung back and forth in that. Right now, the, uh, the consensus, I would say, is more on localized, uh, independent invention of, of tribalization processes. And, and they grow out of that archaic background of hunting and gathering, but really come to fluorescence in the in the in the woodland time period and, and it seems to be connected with with both the development of domesticated plants and a, and a more agricultural orientation uh, that supplements that hunting and gathering hunting and gathering really never went away and you know in some ways it, it's still with us today you know there are people who who do hunt and fish and and and, and grow some of their own food so I wouldn't I wouldn't say we're we're absolutely not hunter-gatherers, but, but agriculture really dominates by uh, a thousand years ago, but, but tribes are older than that. Um, they, they seem to be related to that woodland period, and, and what we call the late woodland in particular shows signs of, of, of tribalization, and, and um, one of the ways that's expressed is in, in the decora- decorations on pottery. Um, they, they start to become more formalized. Uh, they look like maybe they are reflecting uh, societal messages and and are representational of group identity. So um, so a lot of archaeologists think that that in the late woodland, so starting maybe around 8800 or so, plus or minus, um, uh, that we see that that the first steps towards what probably was reaching fruition not long before the Europeans came, but uh, but um, but definitely you know so in advance of that, but but it hadn't been around a long long time. Um, and that's reflected, you know, it would, be, it would be so great to be able to go in a time machine and go back to about A.D. 15 or 1600, about when Europeans first came in, because, you know, they were missionaries, they were soldiers, they were traders. They didn't have any anthropologists, they didn't have any linguists, they didn't have people who were trying to record the culture that they were that they were invading. So so it's really hard to reconstruct, But but just based on names of groups and uh, the way that they would, the Europeans would work with a group. 
group and then ask, and what's, what are those people across the river called? And they'd learn a name that was meaningful to the people they asked, but not necessarily the people who they were asking about. And then they get across the river and they'd learn more about those people. And so the history books are full of little bits and fragments and stuff that, that anthropologists and linguists and archaeologists look at and try to make sense of. But, uh, uh, but it's clear there was a lot of diversity, a lot of small group differentiation, um, hundreds of languages spoken across the continent. Um, and, um, and, and in that milieu is that, is that formation of tribes. Um, uh, and, uh, that would be fascinating to, to be able to go back and, and look at that culturally. Rick, well, Jay took my question, so, I, I, no. so but younger Rick, I should say. I, I'm I'm an I'm an H and I one myself. John, the uh, piggyback on that, uh, the uh, I'm somewhat familiar with Western tribes because that's where mm-hmm. I spent most of my adult sentient period in life. Uh, but I was wondering, like the Sac, Fox, Iowa, some of these other tribes in 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 uh, in the state. When did they start to diverge culturally where they couldn't understand each other's language? Um, I wish I, I wish I could give you some firm dates on that, but that's a really difficult thing to estimate. So uh, we use a lot of proxy information and uh, from archaeological context and and uh, uh, what little the linguist can tell us about that. Uh, it seems like uh, there was a lot of of this smaller group, we're, we're forming and, and this tribalization process, um, again, in this late woodland into the what we call the, the, the late um, or, or uh, pre-contact period. So after 1000 A.D. Um, and, and again, it probably has people it has to do with people settling down more and territory starting to become more crystallized and, and uh, differentiated. So uh, but it's but it's really hard to tell. You know, there's um, uh, the the level of, of understandability between some of these languages is pretty subtle. Um, and uh, I'm not a linguist, so it's, it's a little outside of my sphere. But, uh, but there were a lot of different languages being spoken, for sure. And that suggests a lot of cultural differentiation as well. Um, the Meskwaki, the second fox tribe of the Mississippi and Iowa, or as they call themselves, the Meskwaki Nation, they're relative newcomers to Iowa. That is, they didn't really get across the Mississippi until about AD 1700. And that's documented historically uh, pretty well in French and British documents. Um, their origins are much farther east. They were one of these tribes that were, were pushed progressively west out of far northeastern homelands. I think they, they count up on the on the uh, St. Lawrence Seaway someplace where their sort of origin point is. Uh, and they got progressively pushed by the French and by the, the Iroquois Confederacy out of that area and farther and farther west. So they got into um, Wisconsin in about 1600, and uh, I pushed into Iowa about 1700. So so um, uh, we have some good friends up there, and, and they like to joke that they're the, they're the last Indians into Iowa, but they're the only ones that are left so so they they and they take that very that, that they take that as a very serious responsibility that therefore they stand for all indians in iowa yes. on certain issues like repatriation of human remains and, who and were the original were, indians that are uh they can be traced back thousands of years so, so yeah the older the, the older end of that that's that's where it gets pretty murky in in into the archaeological record um we have pretty strong evidence that 
some of the named groups like Ponca and Omaha and Ho-Chunk, Winnebago, uh, were probably all here. Iowa, uh, that the state's named after, the, the Iowa, uh, now known as the Iowa Tribe of Kansas and Nebraska and the Iowa Tribe of Oklahoma, were certainly resident here well before the Meskwaki ever arrived in 1700. Uh, but then we start pushing back far enough in time that we lose that that tribalization. So we're back to using archaeological terms because even today's native peoples don't have names other than our ancestors, the older people, you know, the the ones who came before kind of names. So they don't really have an identifier beyond that um, that they can apply that goes back more than a thousand years ago or so. Uh, so we know they're they're ancestral to the populations, but uh, we can't yet draw the lines exactly between you know group X and group Y. Okay, um, back to what we're talking about. I'm going to ask kind of back to the geographical question. So, of course, you were talking about that Iowa, because of glacier remains or glaciers that were still there, the travel was definitely a challenge. And you were talking about some of the routes that were taken by uh, Native American tribes because at the time it seemed the best and easiest way to get there. Um Kind of think of it because up in, I'm thinking of more like Storm Lake, where you happen to have, uh, or Spirit Lake, I should say, where you actually have a glacier lake. Um, right. Is that a large area where you would find remains? Because, again, it's one of the deepest lakes in what would be Iowa. And it seemed right. to be something that would be a great place to produce food in many ways, much easier than other locations. Uh, mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So is that where so you. Good. Yeah, well, I was going to say, yeah, West Okaboji is Iowa's uh, deepest natural lake, and Spirit, which just to the north of that, is the largest by surface area natural lake in Iowa. Uh, so those were formed as the glaciers are retreating in that part of Iowa, and that's just at the very uh, north and west edge of that Des Moines lobe uh, is is up in that, just clips the, those areas. And uh, so those were probably... Those lakes were probably created in you know, ten, eleven, twelve thousand years ago. I don't, I don't know the exact uh, timing on the on the geologic dates, but but there are certainly uh, have been um, some Clovis points found uh, just to the west of there. Uh, I, again, in, in surface context, so so not buried controlled context, but in surface context, uh, there are there are mammoth and mastodon teeth that have been found in in quarries in in uh, Dickinson County. So uh, there, those kind of animals were definitely around at the end of the Pleistocene. Um, that area later became uh, a sort of a refugium in the uh, otherwise uh, tall grass prairie area uh, because of the lakes. And, and there's an actually, a, the culture group is called the Prairie Lakes Woodland, which is a little bit of a misnomer. Uh, woodland because of the definition archaeologically of, of pottery using agriculturally oriented communities. Um, so that label gets applied up there, even though it's actually in the Prairie Lakes area. Um, and uh, and that's because the lakes protected large stands of trees that otherwise would have been uh, burned in prairie fires. So, so particularly on the east sides of lakes or in areas where there was enough lakes in tight uh, 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 location one to another, you would get large stands of timber that otherwise didn't exist, you know, for 
uh, many, many miles in, in any direction up there on those, uh, in what is really prairie, uh, plains sort of environment, very different than what was, say, down here in, um, in southeast Iowa. Okay. We would like to thank our guest for the 476th show, John Dorshuk, Iowa State Archaeologist and Director of the State Archaeologist and Adjunct Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Iowa, who talked with us about ancient peoples of Iowa. The History Bus for today's show were Rick Sweet and Jay Swords. ROI can be found at 9.30 p.m. Friday nights on KALA Radio or on the web at TuneIn.com. If you're looking for older programs, you'll find them on SoundCloud.com. Just put in KALA Radio in the search and click on the first icon and scroll down to find nearly a decade of ROI shows. You can also find ROI on your favorite streaming platforms. ROI is recorded at station KALA, St. Ambrose University.